Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So in this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jacob Haddad, who is the co-founder of a company called AcuRx. AcuRx is a health tech company specializing in communication. So more than likely, if you have received a text message from your GP practice, it has likely been powered by AcuRx. In this episode, I asked Jacob about his leadership style, where he sees himself in the business moving forwards. We speak about the kind of lucky breaks and opportunities that AcuRx have had, but it's not just luck. It is to do with company culture and how they position themselves and how they respond to opportunities. Jacob also shares about a really big pivot he made in the business very early on which has been absolutely critical in their success today. And also talk about sometimes the struggle with letting things go. And I think everybody can relate to, you know, when something's not working and all the data suggests it's not working, but it's just hard to let go. So I think for me, that was a key takeaway. There are some things in my life (laughs) I need to let go. Jacob's a really cool guy. I really appreciate his time. So passionate about what he does. You're going to love it. Enjoy. Hey, Jacob, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me as well, Tara. Great to be here. My pleasure. My pleasure. How are you? I've had a really good day. It's 12 o'clock. I've had a really good meeting. You know, when you you think, oh, how's a meeting going to go? It could go. <laughs> be and, it went, and it went all right. Yes. Yeah, so I am feeling on a high. I was just thinking back to when we first met. It was at Best Practice last year and we were on a panel and I forgot your name. <laughs> 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 but luckily, I think you said you didn't notice. So would you be able to share with our guests a little bit about who you are and what you do today? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm... Jacob and run a company called Accurex, and we are a communication platform for healthcare. And what that actually means is we make software for the health system to communicate. Most of that to date has been GP practices and their patients, but a lot of our growth is in communication between providers and between hospitals and patients and all the different channels of communication around the system. So, from a layman's point of view, what does that mean? Practically today, we send a lot of text messages. 
as our sort of bread and butter, we will send 2 million messages today to patients around the country. And about a third of those are someone typing out a message to a patient and hitting send. And about two thirds of those are things like inviting big groups of patients to come and have their reviews, remind them of their appointments or things like that. Okay. And why did you choose the name AcuRx? We didn't start out doing communication. We started out working on antibiotic prescribing. So this huge problem that all of modern medicine relies on access to effective antibiotics and antibiotic resistance is this big sort of existential threat to modern medicine. We spent the first 18 months working on that. And so Accurix is meant to stand for sort of accurate prescription, RX being the shorthand for prescription. So that's where the name comes from. When we shifted to communication, we never really got around to changing the name. Then things grew and took off and we haven't gone back to change it. We do get asked a lot, is it Accurix or AccuRx? And we don't really mind. We say Accurix, but you can say it how you want. I think okay. apparently there's a bit of a north-south divide on uh, pronunciation. I say AccuRx. That's absolutely fine. Okay, I'll keep it. So why did you start this? Why did you start along this journey? So personally, I got really into healthcare actually at university when I was doing an engineering degree, but then the final year I was sort of engineering and management quality improvement projects in the hospital and just loved it. And then went off into consulting in healthcare, didn't really enjoy that because the incentives were just so skew, not as a consulting firm, just like in the system um, trying to drive activity. Didn't enjoy that, actually got fired from that. And then spent a few months trying to work out what I wanted to do next. You know, looked at a few things outside of healthcare, but they just didn't excite me. And then ended up joining an accelerator called Entrepreneur First to start a company in the healthcare space. Wasn't sure what, but we looked at all the different big problems in the system and picked antimicrobial resistance just because of how big and existential it is. But turns out there are a lot more urgent and burning problems, which is what we ended up working on. When you say we, who's we? Everyone on Entrepreneur First goes in as an individual, but quite early on started working with Lawrence, my co-founder. So he'd come from the oil and gas industry, wanted to go and do something that makes a difference and is a software engineer by background. Um, And so we met pretty early on in the program and that's when we started working together. Is it hard to get into an accelerator? Because you've said it as if it was like, oh, I don't really know what I was doing, but I ended up in this accelerator. Is it hard? I mean, they, there's an application process. I think it is competitive. I applied to it when I was at university and didn't get in. And so that was then the second time I applied. And they take a mix of people with very, very technical backgrounds, which I don't have. And then people with sort of sector experience or focus, which you know I'd come with that healthcare focus. And yeah, that's where we met. And how long has AccuRx been going now? So it is almost seven years. It will be seven years in May. A very, very long time, actually. It was actually six years ago yesterday we installed in our first GP practice, but with antibiotic prescribing software. And then about five years ago that we started growing our messaging product. So five years ago, we were only in about 20 practices at this time, but that's when it like started growing. And what was the kind of real key pivot point where you felt like your initial vision, you know, like where messaging took over, what was it? What data did you see or what opportunity presented itself for you to think, oh, do you know what? We should be doing this and we should let go of that. So it probably happened over about seven or eight months. 
summer 2017, we had a product in about 20 practices that we couldn't get anyone to use. And then we thought, okay, maybe we're not very good at selling it. So let's just go and try and sell it to CCGs to improve their prescribing. And that didn't go anywhere. Even if we got people using our product, which we couldn't yet, and it improved prescribing, which we hadn't proven yet, do we think we could sell it? Probably not. And so we decided to change focus. I remember being incredibly worried about it and being like, we've got these users who are like, are, you know, not many, but who like trusted us very early. And we've got this team who've been working on this for the last best part of a year. And we're going to like essentially tear it all up and move on to something else. Like, how are they going to take that? Are they just going to lose confidence in the company and go and find something else? I remember doing the meeting to try and explain it. And someone in the, in the team just being like, well, why are we still working on this? Surely we should change. That was a big relief. We pivoted beginning of October 2017 and got everyone to listen to this podcast about when Airbnb was small and how they did everything in a very, very unscalable way. They went around to every host and took the photos and put them up on Craigslist and emailed back and forth with the guests. And we're like, that's what we need to do. We need to go and make two practices dependent on us was our goal. And not dependent in any sort of malicious way, just like yeah. so much more efficient that they couldn't function without us. Two was way too many. So we damned that to one. And we spent three or four months kind of like living in a GP practice, like there most days of the week in Oxford, doing all sorts of improvements, how they understand their demand, how they plan their staff capacity, how they plan their workforce, how they make sure they've got the right training to have the right skill mix, how reception book things, different people, how they manage long-term conditions, how they sort of manage knowledge in the practice, all these different streams of work must have been at least 30 different projects or experiments. And out of that, I would say we came out with a couple of big learnings. One, if we had to go practice by practice, we'd never do anything at scale. So we had to build up something that was a bit more self-service. And then the other, but it took a few months to properly realize this. It wasn't like a, we saw it immediately, was that actually there were so many problems. You know, We'd come up with solutions, but it was hard to scale them. But the underlying challenge was one of communication. And so time and time again, it would be you're shadowing a GP appointment and a patient's come asking for medication that their consultant in hospital requested, but the hospital letter hasn't come through yet. Or you're on reception and a paramedic's at a patient's home trying to find out their care plan, but they need to speak to the patient's GP and the GP's not available. Every day, it was hundreds of these little communication challenges. And we had a bit of our antibiotic prescribing software. You could send advice to a patient by SMS. And when people did that, often they did it on their own phone first just to test it out. They thought it was like witchcraft that they could send (laughs) a message to a phone and it went into the medical record at the same time. And so I wish we'd listened to that signal sooner. It was for sending advice. So we thought, okay, well, what about if they could send advice for any appointment rather than just for a sore throat or UTI? And so we went and scraped the NHS Choices website because there wasn't an API at the time and built a very early version of that. That was one of the experiments. And then what we started to see quite quickly was that practice we were in, and then quite soon after the others who had us installed, using that to message all sorts of other things, not just sending advice, but sending normal test results and asking patients to book an appointment and telling patients their prescriptions ready to collect. And like all these cases we just didn't realize were a thing. Most users didn't see it as a problem. When we spoke to lots of people, said, oh, now you can message a patient. They'd say, oh, why do we need that? We just call them up or we just book them in for an appointment. So that was a bit of our pivot, late 2017, early 2018. And what was your lucky break? What was the moment where you thought, oh my God, the demand has just surged? We've had lots of lucky moments. 
I think some early ones were when we tried out that patient messaging and people started coming up with these different uses. We then made a version you could install yourself and we didn't know how we were going to grow it. So we did all these different experiments. We tried cold calling practices and cold emailing practices and paying to be in brochures and Google ads and all these different things. And only two things worked. So one of them was sending letters with handwritten post-it notes on saying, try out this free software. Because when we sent just a letter by itself, no, everyone ignored it. But with a post-it note, we got like 3% conversion. And so that's got us a few like seeds in different parts of the country. We'd only send 100 at a time because we, we couldn't yeah. afford more stamps than that, basically. <laughs> um, but then the other, I remember talking to a user who was very, very skeptical about every... We had sort of an online chat thing and, you know, why is this free? And where's the data going? How can we trust this? And all, all these different questions. And we were like, they're never going to install. And then a day later, we got an email from that user, CC to us, so all the practice managers in that area saying, I heard from this company, I thought it was a scam. Stop what you're doing now and go and install oh, this software. Amazing. It's the best thing. Our GPs love it. So the penny dropped then, right? That's how we're going to grow. It sounds very obvious in hindsight, but is users telling other users? So there were lots of lucky moments in 2018. We got a lot of feature requests as I think, you know, the things we've built are the ones that get feature requests. If we ever build anything, it doesn't, then probably no one is using it or cares that much about it. And one of them was around creating your own templates. And so we were like, oh, we can do this. And we said to practices, do you know any other practices nearby who could install? And we then sort of formalized that. So we turned it on if you'd referred another practice. And that there's like a kink in our growth chart in May 2018, where practices were referring others. And then I'd say another big lucky moment was, and it sounds very, very odd to say this, but February 2020, we were in about 55% of practices. And there's a lot of stories around this time, but the short version of it is there were some things we could do to help respond to COVID. Built some things over the weekend of, I think, 7, 8th of March. And six weeks later, we were in all GP practices. And so COVID became this forcing function for adopting better ways of communicating with patients. And that also drove quite a lot of growth as well. And that was sort of a combination of lucky timing, being quite prepared, I think. The team really like rising to the challenge and moving incredibly fast. But yeah, it was a very like emotional time. So you've talked about lucky breaks. And I suppose my question was, there comes a point when it's not lucky you guys are doing something or doing multiple things to create the opportunities. You know, like you're not just sitting there and things just fall in your lap. So where you say your team was prepared, what are you doing to create these opportunities? What is it about your team that enables you to be in the right place at the right time, know the right people and respond quickly? Describe your team culture. If I think about particularly our early days, because that's when things grew the fastest. That's, you know, now we're a big enough organization. We have some of that inertia and resources. We've got, mm -hmm. you know, a big team with lots of different skills and all those things. One, spend a huge amount of time with users and listen to their problems. Don't necessarily listen to the proposed solutions. Ask lots of questions. Watch them do things and ask why. And in that, we didn't really realize this at the time, but you build so much intuition around what would work, what wouldn't work, what are the problems they have that they didn't even realize they have. So spend a huge amount of time with users, more than you think is necessary. Like it should be to the point where you're like, is this the best use of my time? And like, yeah, yes, it is. And then you know, build that intuition. Based on that, try things out. And very fortunate in our early team, we had 
a few software engineers, Lawrence, my co-founder, Ben and Callum and Jafar, could spin an early version of something up incredibly quickly, try something out. And then essentially, if something's working, like lean into it more and like go after it more and try and grow it and prove it and build on the features. And if something's not, then don't and, and ditch it. And it sounds very simple saying all of that, but I think that was our recipe in the early days was, yeah, spend a lot of time with users, build that intuition, experiment based on that intuition. Because when you've got that intuition, you can really like put your best foot forward because you can eliminate lots of ideas in your head and then have an idea of what might work. But you never really know until you've got people using it and then lean into what works. Is it hard to ditch things? Yeah, massively. Our antibiotic prescribing software, we were so worried about turning off because we had these early practices used it and maybe they'd be annoyed. And eventually, like six months or more after pivoting, we said, right, we need to turn it off because it was just too much effort to update. And I remember emailing our users and one super user who'd been using us right from the start. I remember her replying and saying, oh, I was wondering when you were going to do that. Your new stuff's way better. I (laughs) I wish you'd have told us that months earlier. There's a lot of things that we haven't necessarily ditched, but we're not developing. We're not turning on for more users. And we've got a bunch of practices using. And I think particularly in our space, right, in healthcare, there are so many unsolved problems that a lot of the time, the things you're ditching might be actually very like viable and important solutions to real problems. And so it's not just like, is this a good idea or not? It's like, is this the most important thing we can be doing to like get towards our vision? That's the really important thing. And yeah, we haven't been great at focus historically. And that's hurt us, but it's also helped us, right? If we were really good at focus, we probably wouldn't have lent into like the beginning of COVID and general practice and wider parts of the system respond to COVID. We probably wouldn't have built a way to book COVID vaccines and played a role in that program. So it's like there's pros and cons of everything, I guess, but it is really, really hard to let go of things. Yeah. Are you venture backed? Yeah, we are. So we've got a few institutional investors, including Entrepreneur First, the accelerator I met, okay, founder on. And actually, one of them is also part of essentially British business bankers. It's owned by UK taxpayers as well. So we've got the government, the treasury as an investor too. And then we were also very fortunate, actually, we speak about lucky breaks. We had two Innovate UK grants very early on, which was when we were completely uninvestable as a company. Like No investor would touch us with a barge pole because we didn't know what we were doing. We were going after a problem that was an externality. We had no users. We had not only no revenue, we had no even like plan for revenue. Completely uninvestable. Unfortunately, we got two grants that got us to the point where we were investable, where we didn't have revenue, but we at least had growth. The aim of that funding is to back very early and things and then de-risk them for investment. That was very, very lucky. You've got growth. Do you have profit? We have been quite profitable, but we're also growing our team quite a lot. So we're not profitable at the moment because we're investing a lot in Mm R&D. We're trying to build a lot more products and grow, get towards our vision, grow in other parts of the system. So I'd say we're a a long way off from being a profitable company. How do you stay ahead of the competition? So when I have conversations, mm. AccuRx come up all the time, <laughs> all the time, which is great marketing for you guys. But yeah, there'll be companies watching. They'll be looking for the problems that you can't solve or any issues. Like, how do you stay ahead? So my personal views on this are that one, what we do shouldn't be too defined by the competition. Like We need to keep looking forwards, not on what other people are doing. 
and solve problems for our users, not do a thing because a competitor has done it. Now, that's got quite hard recently because of how procurement works and like a competitor might do a thing. And we might actually be like, we don't actually think it's that useful. We spend a lot of time with users. They don't really value it, but it's on a procurement framework. We need to do it. I think we stay ahead by continuing to talk to our users, really, really understanding their needs, building intuition, iterating fast. But there's lots of smaller cultural things. It's like providing really, really good support to our users, having really, really good reliability, having really good transparency. Something does go wrong, owning up to it and explaining to our users why and what we're doing about it. So I think there's lots of different things, but it has to all come from staying very, very user-focused. I think that's primary. Probably the other one, which I think we need to do a lot more of, is a real, real focus on that vision. So we're trying to get to a place where everyone involved in a patient's care can communicate with each other. And so if we get too distracted by this thing a competitor is doing or this thing a customer is asking for, it's going to be really, really hard to get to this vision. Part of the challenge is it's also much harder when you're a bigger organization because we don't have the same urgency and bias for action as we did when we were 10 people. And like that's how big companies get disrupted as well. And we'll need to disrupt ourselves too, yeah. which is a well-known problem. How big are you? We're about 220 people at the moment. Do you have like a head office or is everybody? We've got an office in Shoreditch and people are in most days. Give us the highlights of what you've been up to this week. I want to understand what does a founder do? What's your diary look like? Oh, too many meetings. So at the moment, it's a mix of we're trying to hire some senior roles, so interviews and things for those roles, working with our general managers of our different areas of the company on what their goals are and how we're tracking against our plan there, working with our product managers on different parts of our products. And I, I like to get really, really into the detail on product and how we're solving different problems and what the different options are and why we've picked this one, not that one. And so those have been some of the key things. Went out to practice on Tuesday morning. So I like to go out to see our users regularly. Those have been some of the meetings. Why, when you're so busy, you go to conferences, you go on podcasts, why is that a good use of your time? You were at best practice. Oh, Everybody yeah. knows what AccuRx does. You know, like you said, it's in every practice. You're on this podcast. When you're so busy, why is this an important use of your time? Or did you just feel like you couldn't say no? <laughs> <laughs> I've got to have things in my week that like give me energy. I, I like sharing our story. And, you know, if I think about things like the conferences, best bit about being at that conference we met at was just meeting a load of other users and hearing from them users I hadn't met before about what other challenges they have and how they're using us and just like outside of tech and communication you know what the challenges they're facing in the health system are at the moment I think that's the most like energizing and motivating thing I try and keep conferences and things to a minimum could spend all your time doing that what conferences are you going to this year so far, the ones I know of, I'm speaking at the Rewired Conference in a few weeks and at Confed in the summer. There might be a few others, but those are the ones that are in my diary, certainly. Okay. Can you share with our listeners, have you ever, hopefully you would say yes, of what you're not human, can you share a genuine mistake that you have made, which has caused quite a big implication in the business? We've got to make a lot of, in my role, a lot of decisions and a lot of like strategic calls around all sorts of things, hiring, commercials, what products we build, what we prioritize. I think one example would be 
we wrote a white paper around how the tech for a vaccine program should work in sort of 2020. We shared it around a bit, didn't get the engagement we'd hoped for, and so we sort of left it. And then it was coming up to the vaccine program starting and realised there wasn't really the tech required. So we put a proposal forward, started building a solution for managing all the booking, and, and that's quite aligned with what we do around communication. But then there was a second part around also recording vaccinations. And both myself and my co-founder were very, very keen on this. We like love a fire. We love chaos. We love the sort of being in the sort of heat of all the action. And we're like, right, well, national vaccination program is going to be massively slowed down if there's very, very buggy and clunky and slow software that kept going down. Every time it went down, we were like, this is going to be a sort of national emergency if the vaccine program can't roll out. So we were like, right, well, we can build something here. And we got a team on it and we couldn't get the engagement we needed, but we like kept at it for far too long. So we were trying to really push and we kept hearing, okay, well, we just need to jump through these three hoops. Then we can be assured and go live and then these three hoops and kept pushing at it where really we should have months before be like, no, this is not our vision. It's going to be very hard to get the engagement we needed. And ultimately, like that cost us a few months where we could have been moving other parts of our product forward. And it's going to be really hard for the team working on that who built a working product but couldn't get it essentially to market because of all the different bureaucracy. So that's one example, but we could spend the whole conversation going through lots of different mistakes. How would you describe your leadership style? I think I'm trying to figure that out at the moment. And that's not me avoiding the question. That's on my mind. When we were small, I didn't really have to think about it too much. I think a core part of it for me is exciting and inspiring people and trying to get them really engaged in the problems we're trying to solve and why they're important. I think I'm working out at the moment how decisive and how much direction you know I want to give and how I want to drive performance in the organization when we're a much bigger company than when we were smaller and it just sort of happened naturally. So yeah, I would say I'm figuring a lot of that out, to be honest. Where is the doubt? Why do you not know what your leadership style is? What is making you question? Oh, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. I think knowing what is right for the organization at this stage, I think knowing what I'm able to like follow through. This is all very well saying like, I want my leadership style to be X, but then if I can't do that, it's not going to be much good. I think understanding how uncompromising or compromising I want to be on different things. I think understanding like what do we need at the moment really like what's going to be best what's going to get the best out of people what do you think has led you to seven years what do you think about your leadership style has taken you from creating this organization pivoting being able to get into every single practice like what is it about I know obviously it's not just you it's a team but what do you think has been your secret sauce that has enabled the business to keep on thriving in quite a tough arena it's a great question. I feel like I'm with my coach. This is this is great. Um, no, no, don't apologise. I think it is a mix of being quite hands-on with the detail and still trying to empower others, but wanting to know what's going on and having opinions in a lot of the detail. I think just that relentless focus on our users and the mission, that coming before other things. And then I think also trying to build one-to-one relationships with everyone in the organization, which obviously becomes much harder once you're 200 plus people. But all of our decisions, the way we work, it has to be about the mission, not about any individuals like ego or what's best for them, but about like what is going to help us as a company solve communication in healthcare. 
I've never, I guess, thought about that as explicitly, but I think that's what we've tried to always do is tie things back to that. Could you see a time when you are not hands-on in the business? To be honest, no, I can't. But just because I can't see it now, it doesn't mean it's not possible. You know, I get so much energy from understanding what problems our user have, users have and then like what are the different solutions that we can take to that and then, you know, a level up from that. What does the platform look like overall that solves all of these things, not just the individual? Because I think we've done a decent job of building different individual solutions, but actually what we need to do now is build something a lot more powerful that's more of a platform to solve any of these communication challenges. And so, yeah, I think I'll always be hands-on with a lot of those things. I ask because I know people that have got lots of, you know, like they sell up businesses all the time and they yeah. you know, like hire a CEO. So some people want the portfolio of businesses, but they don't want to be hands-on. Some people, you know, like they don't want to be the founder CEO. People want different things. So it's just a, what do you want? And I think for me, what we are doing in terms of trying to solve this communication challenge, I cannot think of anything else I'd rather be working on. So it's not a case of like, yeah, I could go and you know, be hands-off or go and start another business or anything like that. This is the problem that I want to spend my waking hours working on until we've cracked it. Is the communication specialist company good at communication internally? No. (laughs) (laughs) We've grown really fast. And so communication is hard and we have a lot of meetings. It's not always clear where decisions are being made. We use something called Slack for internal communication and it's so busy. Um, it's very hard to keep track of things. I don't know the answer there. <laughs> it does trouble me, particularly an element of it is a lot of the communication we're trying to drive in the health system is making things more asynchronous, happen more through messaging rather than real-time conversation or consultation or things like that. Obviously, lots of things also need to be real-time. And that's, I think, a thing we struggle with a lot. A lot of things filter into meetings, which, you know, obviously meetings are incredibly important, but we need to be able to scale the organization. We need to work out how we get better at communication. I don't have anything to compare it to. So maybe we're not, we're not as bad as I think, but it's definitely challenging. Okay. What role is, I can never get the letters right, is it chat GPT or yeah. an AI play in your business at the moment or future? At the moment, nothing significant. I'd see examples flying around on Slack of like, oh, I got it to do this thing. I got it to do this thing. But certainly nothing comes anywhere close to our product. It's very hard to say what role could AI play in the future because we don't know where the tech's going to move. I don't think for many decades we're going to have algorithms giving diagnoses, not just because the tech isn't there and it's not good enough and because it involves things like, you know, not just the evidence, the objective things, but also like personal preference, all these things. But also because like if patients are ill, they want to hear from a human what is wrong with them, not from an algorithm. I think where there could be more of a role is in automating the action of things. So if you have type 2 diabetes, there are nine things you need every year. You need your cholesterol, your BMI taking, your smoking status, your eyes check, your feet check, all these stages. And only 50% of patients get those nine things. That can all be automated. We can potentially use some types of AI to suggest things for different patients, things like that. But I would generally describe where the system is at at the moment as we have incredibly highly skilled clinicians, not just doctors, a whole range of roles. And then we are just getting them to do a lot of admin, a lot of ordering things and chasing things up and 
trying to find information. And so I think our role is really to streamline all of that. And the way I often describe it is like, we keep the clinician in the driving seat. We're not trying to build an autonomous car, but we're trying to give them like the sat nav and the lane departure warning and the collision avoidance and all the sort of extras that make driving more comfortable and more safe and more efficient and easier. But ultimately, they're the decision maker. So that's the role I think we'll play is it might be that we'll recommend certain things. But as far as we didn't know today, you know, we're always going to keep the clinician in the driver's seat. Okay. Last couple of questions. What advice would you give to somebody looking to work in the field of primary care or general practice? I would say spend a disproportionately huge amount of time with users and on the front line and just observing things and understanding how things work and how things don't work. And, you know, if you're trying to start something there, I think be very experimental, do things in an unscalable way. You can often find friendly practices who, not saying it's easy, but there are lots of very friendly practices out there that are keen to try innovative ways of working. Yeah, spend the vast majority of my time there and not get too fixated on the idea or the solution, but really, really try and spend time understanding the problems. Can you do what you're doing without venture capital? We couldn't have done it because we grew, you know, we had essentially no revenue until 2020, 2021. We were founded in 2016. And we had to do that because we hadn't yet proven value. Procurement decisions in healthcare are incredibly slow and can be bureaucratic. And so we were like, well, the only way to do this is to bypass that and get something in users' hands. And the only way we could do that and build the software and have a team was to raise funding. Okay. And then last question, what has been the absolute highlight of your week? A highlight of this week definitely going out to a practice. The practice I hadn't visited before, hearing how they're using us very innovatively and the impact it's having, and then hearing all their feature requests as well and the extra things that you know they're keen to do and all the other ways they're innovating outside of us. Yeah, that's very energizing. Okay, actually, one last question. Is yeah. there anything that you're working on that you can share? Yeah, we're working on loads of exciting things. Probably the one that's most top of mind at the moment or most exciting at the moment or can I get two? Yeah, uh, yeah. So one is we've got a way for practices to communicate with other providers. And we've actually had it, we built it bef- just before COVID, but then slightly put it on the back burner. But we're really leaning into it again now and trying to make it just as easy as it is to message a patient in a couple of clicks to contact cardiology or district nursing team. So we're going to be rolling that out nationally quite soon. And then the other one is we're investing a huge amount more in our patient experience. So historically, the vast majority of effort into our like staff product and experience, but we're building out a place where all the communication that a patient has from different parts of the health system, they see in one place. So it's like true patient-centered, like integrated care, rather than it being emails here and post here and texts here. So that's incredibly exciting as well. Thank you so much for your time. If people want to connect with you, where is the best place? Probably easiest is on Twitter, Jacob and Haddad. Yeah, that's probably the easiest to get in touch or add me on LinkedIn. But no, thank you. I've really enjoyed this as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you hear, I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five-star review. 
I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram and on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.